It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one. Now a man is seen walking towards the officer's SUV, but the deputy's SUV investigators tell us it seems the suspect was going to pass them, then turned and fired multiple shots while the two were parked. multiple locations that have been burning in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Madam Speaker, my colleagues, my fellow Americans, I rise to support the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump. As far as the allegations of the CIA hacking the Senate computers, nothing can be could be volatile, and I'm about to talk to him about allegations that he was involved with prostitutes in Moscow and that the Russians taped it and have leverage over him. And now, here's CD Media's host of Information Operation. Welcome to Information Operation once again. Uh, today, we have a, a very interesting uh, individual uh, on the show who's... Uh, got a unique background and, and, and really is going to inform us of what's happening in the Department of Defense when it comes to critical race theory, uh, which is really cultural Marxism being taught throughout the DOD now under this, uh, under the Biden administration or regime or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer is an active duty commander in the United States Air Force, uh, same service I served in decades ago. <laughs> and uh, he, he has basically become an expert in cultural Marxism and what's happening in Department of Defense and has a book that's coming out that is going to be just shocking and earthquaking. So, uh, Colonel, can you go ahead and just give an overview of your background and uh, how you got so smart on this subject and, and, and what the book is about? Sure. Thanks, Todd. Happy to be here. Uh, I don't consider myself an expert quite yet. I think that's quite the title but I am continuing to learn about it and I've been studying it for years. Um, as far as my own background, I spent the first uh, 14 plus years of my military career in the Air Force. Uh, as you mentioned, I have a flying background, uh, did pilot training in Oklahoma and uh, ended up getting to stick around there for four years as an instructor pilot for my first assignment. And was a T-38 instructor pilot. What's that? You were a FAPE, right? A first assignment? I was a FAPE. IP? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was a great job. Uh, after leaving that job, I got picked up to fly F-15Cs, the single-seat air-to-air fighter. Mm -hmm. uh, had a few TDY stops en route to Japan, which is mm -hmm. where we were stationed for that. Uh, and uh, flew the F-15 for a year. Was actually medically separated from flying and came into the space career field at the time. Uh, that I found out I was going to be medically separated. I didn't even know that the Air Force had a space command. Yeah. But apparently uh, the GPS on your phone and the missile warning that we've done as a Department of Defense, that's all been operated by the Space Force for many years. And so I started to learn about that and uh, chose to transfer into the Space Force, moved to Colorado, uh, where I had gone to the Air Force Academy 
mm-hmm. uh, graduate uh, of the class of 2006. So that was a nice homecoming. And we've been stationed uh, here uh, in Colorado a few times and, and elsewhere. Um, but uh, since coming to space, I've primarily been in missile warning, space-based mm-hmm. missile warning, although I've had some other jobs. Uh, and to your point, mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, I've spent in uh, school with the Department of Defense, first at what is uh, called Air Command and Staff College, which is kind of right. a standard 04 major level uh, intermediate developmental level training. Yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after everyone parts to the four winds and goes to the various units after ACSC, I stuck around for one more year of academics, one more master's degree, and it was in uh, military strategy at uh, what is, I think by some at least, considered the Defense Department's premier strategy school. Mm-hmm. It was a phenomenal year. Uh, the school is called the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was there that we studied a whole host of topics, including air power history, irregular warfare, mm-hmm. including civil wars a little bit. But mm-hmm. I took a particular interest in Marxism uh, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago at that school and never uh, i had been introduced to it on and off, never taken a great interest in it. Uh, but it, I guess it was the perfect confluence of events, both there at school with what I was hearing, right. uh, some of the texts that I had read, and they had a phenomenal communist Marxism section in the library there at Maxwell Air Force Base. And I spent a long time in there. Uh, and that's where I first It'll probably be removed after this interview goes live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be a hefty move. There's uh, thousands of books in there about oh, communism okay. and Marxism, uh, most of which I'm guessing most people have never heard of before. They've been long since forgotten history. But there's old de- uh, Defense Department manuals uh, that were there that I got to read uh, that I've tried since to find online so that I could purchase them and study them and I can't find them online uh, So someday I'm gonna have to go back for a little trip to the library and uh, do a little more research and, and pick up some of those books yeah. But I, I took great interest in it there uh, since coming into command uh, of a unit I've taken even far greater interest in it still as I've seen some of what's taking place in the Defense Department mm-hmm. um, And to your point it has to do with critical race theory Mm-hmm. which until a few months ago, no one was really talking much about, although it's been around right. for some time. And it is cultural Marxism. Uh, and that means something, which I guess we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, that's that's me in a nutshell, though. Uh, very interesting. I didn't realize you were an academy grad. I, 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 that's fantastic. A, a brother from another mother. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so you're in command of a unit and, and you see this uh, ideology start to be uh, permeated through the Department of Defense and in your service and in your command, I assume. So uh, you decided to write a book and to get the message out and, and thank did. God you did. But uh, tell us that, about that process um, and, and what, how, what drove you to that process. Yeah, I suppose it never hurts to say a book's name more than once. So the book's name is Irresistible Revolution. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, there's we'll a couple the, of books. We'll have the image up here shortly. That's great. Yeah. Uh, subtitle is Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military. It's a bold mm-hmm. topic. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the U.S. military. Uh, Marxism's Goal of Conquest is not specific to the military either. It's uh, it's a uh, it's got Western civilization. Uh, yeah. as a target. It's yeah. got capitalism as a target. It's got the nuclear family as a target. And uh, Marxism does an exceptional job 
ever since it was first penned by Marx and Engels in 1848 in the Communist Manifesto, uh, creating what many people have come to hear as the oppressor versus oppressed narrative. Right. It's it's victimhood uh, mentality and ideology. Very familiar to everybody today as to what we're saying. It is. Put the right name on it. Right. And mm -hmm. so what I attempt to do in the book and what I found might be useful, not just to the military service member, but also to every American, whether they're mm -hmm. uh, an attorney or uh, wearing the uniform or a stay-at-home parent or a school teacher. Uh, mm -hmm. Everyone needs to be properly educated on what critical race theory is, how it has roots in Marxism, which most people don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so I trace through a kind of lineage of ideas starting even before Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto in the mid 19th century. But from there, through much of the 20th century to various critical schools of thought and to its present most, by far most political manifestation, which is critical mm -hmm. race, race theory, mm -hmm. uh, which makes race the lens through which the world is viewed. Uh, and then it weaponizes race dialogue to cause divisions and contentions, hoping that people will get at one another's necks and right. uh, not not be unified, but divided. Right, right. Um, but section, so the first section of my book, um, I felt like it was important to get into what I call the greatness of the American ideal. Uh, I don't think that people can appropriately or properly appreciate how ugly something is like Marxism or critical mm -hmm. race theory, unless they have something to contrast it with. Mm -hmm. And so in the first couple of chapters of the book, roughly the first 40 or 50 pages of the book, uh, I trace through actually competing narratives of American history. Hmm. Uh, I talk quite a bit about the New York Times 1619 project in there to tee up the mm -hmm. discussion. And I talk about what President Trump attempted to do uh, just before leaving office, which was create the President's Advisory 1776 Commission which was essentially, it's other things too, but an effort to combat the New York Times uh, critical race theory based 1619 project. All of the language that we're hearing at the moment about uh, systemic racism, uh, white nationalism, white supremacy um, is, is common to critical race theory and critical race theorists. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's the, it's the undergirding of the 1619 project. Uh, and if people aren't familiar with that, uh, because they've had some hands-on experience with it, they're becoming familiar with it indirectly by everything that you're hearing in the country at the moment. In their uh, schools everywhere. Yeah, in fact, a 1619 project booklet was, was uh, prepared by the Zinn Education Project. He was named after Howard Zinn, radical Marxist uh, historian. Uh, the Zen Education Project has published a 1619 Project booklet. It's gotten into the hands of 4,500 schools across the country at the moment. Uh, and so as I look at that kind of proliferation of an anti-American narrative of, of our history uh, that I was seeing show up at my own base where I'm in command, mm -hmm. uh, I figured it was about time. I'll say high time. That's the word yeah. that Marx uses at the beginning of uh, the Communist Manifesto. Uh, and yesterday was his birthday, by the way. So this is uh, a propos that we're having a, an interview to discuss his ideology the day after his, his birthday uh, and hopefully do something about it. Yeah. But um, yeah, so the first part of the book, I try and describe something that's beautiful. It's America's history and it's, it's founding philosophy. I don't shy away from some of the ugly issues either, but I try and get at why America's 
founding philosophy or ideology is great and and how it's creative and it's unifying mm -hmm. and i and i contrast that in part two of the book with uh marxist ideology i spend a good chunk of the book trying to help educate the reader on what marxist ideology is where it comes from mm -hmm. and then i trace it uh through what starts in the 1930s as critical theory uh which was a product of uh marxists that came over and fled uh fled Hitler's Third Reich in the 1930s. They come to uh, Columbia University, to the teacher's college there, and they establish a kind of Marxist arm of the Frankfurt School and, and establish critical theory, which is the incessant criticism of all things Western culture and civilization. Yeah. And uh, Communist Party USA's numbers boom during the 1930s uh, after their arrival. And narratives about America that are anti-American begin to proliferate, but they don't take hold initially that morphs into critical legal theory in the 1960s 70s and then ultimately it morphs into critical race theory which uh, has got a foothold in the university in the last decade or so but not not in american society broadly and certainly not in the united states military until and this is kind of the crux of the book and why i wanted to write it mm -hmm. we we started to really um invest ourselves as military services in diversity inclusion and equity trainings yeah uh, carol swain um who's a black female academic uh, well respected except for the last year and, mm. and left circles but very well respected uh vander former vanderbilt uh, i think law professor political science professor she recently said in an interview that she thought that the diversity inclusion and equity industry is one of the greatest threats our country is facing and that seems just like uh, it seems like hyperbole, but I don't think it no, is. It's exactly right. Sure. And and the reason that's true is because our diversity, inclusion and equity industry and the trainings we're receiving in the military via that industry are rooted in critical race theory, which right. is rooted in Marxism. And it the language of the training, which most people don't understand, but I help laid out in the book was devised by Marxists. Yeah. The terminology, the vocabulary, the redefinition of terms, uh, even some terms that Americans hold very near and dear to the, their hearts, like freedom and mm -hmm. equality, mm -hmm. for example. Those have been redefined, usurped, and then used to abuse uh, fellow Americans and to create divisions within society, hoping ultimately for, you could call it class conflict, you could call it group identity politic conflict, uh, it's intended to be divisive, and yet we 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 spread it about the military services, pretending like it's going to unify everyone. Do you think that most of the upper leadership knows about? I mean, you've got guys who are obviously in on the game, but then you've got you know flag rank officers who are promoting this stuff, but I'm not sure they all understand what they're promoting. I mean, do you do you agree with that? I agree with that. Um, I make it very clear in my work that. I, I try and give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, mm -hmm. My book isn't about persons or people right. that I'm trying right. to uh, get in trouble or anything like that. It's about ideas. And it just so happens that people are involved in the, the spreading of those ideas. My sense is that um, all of my interactions with senior leaders, for example, mm -hmm. in the Air Force and in the Space Force have been very positive. We've got mm -hmm. very good leaders. Mm -hmm. They care a great deal about their people. They care a great deal about our the lethality of our force, mm -hmm. but um, especially because of the climate at the moment, 
uh, people that sense that something is off with all of the mm -hmm. diversity and inclusion trainings and the language and the coerced speech uh, and this kind of stuff, they're unwilling, I think, and, and perhaps because they don't understand it, they're unwilling to take a stand against it because they fear perhaps that they might be in the wrong. Or they might not get promoted. Or they might not get promoted. That's yeah. exactly right. And, uh, well, don't you, know, you think we, it's time for the excuses to go away at this point, though? Because now we're talking about an existential threat to the United States. I agree with that, too. Mm -hmm. It is an existential threat. Mm -hmm. um, we spend a lot of our time talking about great power competition. That's in the mm -hmm. national security strategy, national defense mm -hmm. strategy, and rightly so. We're a great power, and other powers like China and Russia are on the... Uh, well, they're on the rise, and um, but we face our greatest threat here at home at the well, moment. Well, there's a reason we take an oath yeah. against domestic enemies. You know, you'll the, notice the founders. You'll notice, Todd. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was recently asked to provide extremism down day training mm -hmm. in my unit. Every every unit in the Department of Defense was asked mm -hmm. to do this. Um. The four, I think it was a 70 page booklet that I received uh, in the Department of the Air Force that mm -hmm. that gave us talking points to present to the to our service members. Yeah. The context in which the discussion on extremism within the ranks was teed up began with a vignette about January 6, 2021 sure. at the Capitol, of course. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, then that context painted the entire discussion and all the talking points. All of the examples that were given in that 70-page booklet had to do with not last year, 2020, and the destruction of cities and people's civil liberties. Right. The talking points had to do with various odd examples of white nationalists that have been right. caught at some point in the last decade and punished right. for it and kicked out of the military. Right. Or a radical uh, Islamic terrorist, for example, that opens fire on people. Um, right. But the most radical forms of extremism that we're seeing in our country and in services have nothing to do with the examples that they gave, in fact. Of course. And so an now, fortunately, from yeah. what I'm sorry, I interrupted there's you. There's an agenda behind it all. I mean, this, there was an agenda behind this stand down day, obviously. There is. And so what I don't do is is to accuse senior leaders. Some of them are public figures. And so I mentioned yeah. them by name, the secretary of defense, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't accuse people of ill motive because mm -hmm. I can't possibly know people's motive. Although right. at the moment, the diversity and inclusion industry is all about punishing people for their implicit and unconscious biases, uh, as if we can be judged by biases that we ourselves can't even perceive that we have. It's a right. completely unfair standard. And yeah, there's an agenda behind that too. But I bring up um, that agenda that you're referring to. I refer to the Secretary of Defense, his policies, uh, the way he's trying to go about extremism in the book, for example. Mm -hmm. I don't demonize the man, but I, I want to make it clear to both him and every service member that if we pursue this agenda, it will divide us. It will not unify us. Yeah. And um, so to your, you know, your question was that do senior leaders or other service members who are in charge pushing these policies understand exactly what they're doing? I hope not. Yeah, uh, I think some do, but I couldn't tell you exactly who they are. Right. All I know is that people tend to try to be compassionate. They try to give people equal opportunity, uh, mm -hmm. and that's morphing very rapidly into status quos and equal outcomes that right. that uh, necessitate uh, forced inequality. And lack of unit cohesiveness, lack of military effectiveness, lack of lethality, lack of 
uh, strategy. I mean, go down the list. I mean, when you're worried about this, you're not worried about what's really important, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah, well, for years, the Air Force has been trying to fix a fighter pilot shortage. Mm -hmm. and, and the way that it does that is it pays people a lot of money to stick around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in my view, I can I can offer my view on Mm -hmm. some some of these initiatives i'll say that those who want to stick around will take the money and stay and those who don't it was never about the money in the first place and they right. they get out um but in the midst of a pilot shortage we have the nerve as a pentagon a spokesperson for example or public affairs official to say that we have too many white pilots yeah. that was just said last month if you want to provide that kind of messaging to your already struggling pilot force, you can expect to see further retention problems. Of course. Uh, and, and my sense is that I don't care. I'll make it clear. I don't care what the politics of my service members are. Uh, right. They can be Democrats, Republicans. It doesn't matter to me. Right. Um, I have my own views. Uh, I respect their views. They're welcome to participate in the political process. But when senior leaders begin to pol politicize the institution itself, that's not what the American people expect and it's not our obligation. And yeah. the the young service members come in out of high school sometimes into the services expecting to do a thing in defense of their country, wearing the uniform, and they're met with what I'll call a hyper-politicized work environment where diversity and inclusion initiatives are being pushed constantly. In fact, uh, the one at my base, uh, we read a book called um, so you want to talk about race by Igeoma Oluo. Mm -hmm. uh, there are there are suggestions in there about how the reader ought to be donating their free money, which politicians they ought to, to be supporting, yeah. which social justice initiatives they ought to be supporting. And uh, the United States is referred to as a white supremacist nation all throughout the entire work. Mm. Uh, and it has no place in the military whatsoever. Yeah. Well, uh, again, you yeah. know, we're... we're couple decades apart, but, uh, you know, nobody cared what right. was. All we cared about is, did you have my back when I needed it? You know, that was it. And uh, I talked to a young enlisted person in the U.S. Air Force recently, and uh, I asked him about, you know, a lot of this racist stuff that's flowing through. And he said, well, it's okay, because the Air Force leadership agrees with it, you know. And so, yeah, there's an effect and consequence of what you're talking about. That's right. Now, uh I'd like to think that those who lead the services, you know, mm -hmm. the highest ranking members, have some pull or sway in affecting mm -hmm. whether or not this kind of toxic, poisonous rhetoric mm -hmm. continues to to affect their service. But yeah. I'm not sure that they have much pull or sway at the moment. Um, they can disagree once. Yeah, yeah, they can disagree twice, and then they're they're likely to not disagree again. Yeah, sure. And uh, so. I, as I contemplate that dilemma and understanding, I think, quite well where this leads if, if we don't knock it off, mm -hmm. uh, because we saw it all throughout the 20th century, um, I, I feel like, well, who better to write a book about this from within the services or to talk about it than someone who's active duty, who sees it at the ground level, what it's doing, without revealing you know, the identities of the people involved, I try and be very explicit in, in how I describe how this is impacting our culture as a military. And um, I'll tell you at the moment, because in recent American history, neo-Marxist thought has found a welcome home in the Democrat Party, I'll put it that way, or in left domestic politics, 
uh, what you see happening in the U.S. military at the moment is that if you're a conservative, uh, then you're lumped into a group of people who are labeled extremists. Yeah. If you're willing to voice your views, <laughs> and if you're if you're aligned with the left, then it's okay to be an activist online because no one's going to hold you accountable. Right. So the book is called Irresistible Revolution. What what do you what do you suggest to uh, a young enlisted member or a young company grade officer who's you know, faced with this, do, do you get out? Do you look for another career? Do you stay in? You know, mm -hmm. I'm telling people stay in because we're going to need right. you down the road, you know, at some point. Um, and I'm not talking for a violent me. I mean, I mean, to rebuild the military from this garbage. Right. It's, it's a great question. I try to get at it in the last chapter of my book a little bit, mm -hmm. hoping that some of my suggestions are going to some one of them or two of them will ring true for someone mm -hmm. who's reading and they can say, you know, I can do that. Yeah. But I think the bottom line up front right now is that if you start to learn what critical race theory is and you get a sense for its rhetoric and its language, mm -hmm. start to reject it. Mm -hmm. Don't put up with it. You need to stand courageous. And I don't care if you're a brand new airman in yeah. the Air Force, you're a young soldier, you're a cadet at West Point or at the Air Force Academy. You say, oh, sorry, I don't buy into that. That's political ideology. Order. It's an illegal order, right? I mean, to become political. Well, it, it discriminates. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I've got something in front of me uh, that mm -hmm. I'll just point out here. As a part of our extremism down day, uh, we were told to read Defense uh, Department Instruction 1325.06. And the title of that instruction is Handling Dissent and Protest Activities Among Members of the Armed Forces. And they wanted us to share this definition that's in there of extremism mm -hmm. with our members, which I did. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least my unit was, it was explained to them that this isn't just a right-wing political problem. This is across the political spectrum. And there are various political ideologies, including Marxism on the left that, uh, that are currently a big problem. And so this, this is what that DODI says. Uh, it's a 10 page instruction and in it, military personnel are prohibited from advocating or participating in extremist doctrine, ideology, or causes such as those that advance, encourage, or advocate illegal discrimination based on race, creed, color, sex, religion, ethnicity, or national origin, or, and here's, think of 2020, or, if I find my place again, or advocate the use of force, violence, or criminal activity, or otherwise advance efforts to deprive individuals of their civil rights. Mm -hmm. Well, if military service members are not authorized to advocate or participate in organizations or ideologies that do those things, then we got a lot of extremists in the military at the moment, <laughs> but likely not the kind uh, that the Defense Department is on the hunt for. Well, uh, you know, the, the whole it seems to me that DOD is becoming a, uh, a re-education camp. You know, when I, I was at the academy, it was you kill people and break things. That's what we were trained to do, kill MIGs, you know, and so right. uh, that that warrior spirit, you know, and the academy, maybe we could do another top, another interview down the road on that. But the academies are mm -hmm. are festering in this stuff and they've lost their way. And these used to be national treasures and we have to get that back. But that's a whole nother discussion. Right. So I have a question for you, uh, which I've always pondered about. You know, I, I was I've known for a decade that something's really wrong. In, in in what's being pushed against the country. I mean, 
two caravans or two migrations uh, into Western civilization in Europe and in North America don't happen at the same time accidentally or coincidentally. I mean, all of this was planned. It seems like uh, the propaganda effort has been planned and prosecuted. Where is it coming from? Do you think it's China? I, I think China is a big part of it. But who was behind all of this? That's been the big enigma for me. It's a great question. I, well, I have I have some thoughts, but they're just my thoughts. Yeah. Um, I think that there's nothing more personal view that mm -hmm. Xi Jinping mm -hmm. would like to see more than to win a war against the United States without shedding blood, right. and to assume their position as first a regional hegemon in uh, the Asia Pacific region, and then assume their place on the world stage. America having lost its brilliance. Mm -hmm as we worry about you know, critical race theory, for example, and they feed that on social media constantly. Yeah, they have a bot, uh, they, armies of bots doing all They have things. armies of bots that would do, I mean, Xi Jinping would, would love for nothing more to watch us rot like this mm -hmm. from the inside, because it means that there will be no great power competition between the United States and, and China. There will, not, there will not need to be. Uh, we're talking about needing to be strong warriors in the Defense Department, rightly so. Mm -hmm. And we do that all at the same time that we're talking about establishing racial quotas, for example, or making sure that we're avoiding uh, toxic masculinity or the right patriarchy. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think China's involved. Yeah. I think happily so. I don't know that they initiated it. I think that, um, you know, Marxism has found a welcome home in the university for decades. Sure. And it's never found a welcome home in the United States because we were hanging on to something, largely Judeo-Christian values. Mm -hmm. We were also hanging on to uh, a belief in America's founding philosophy. Mm -hmm. And as we divorce ourselves from our culture, our roots, and our, and our founding philosophy and Judeo-Christian values, for example, there is a vacuum that's left in the human soul that has to be filled with something. And that's exactly what ideology is and does. Yeah. It's a philosophy combined with a moral imperative. And Marxism provides just that, including salvation on this earth. Yes. Uh, if you if you participate in this, we're going to have a perfect paradise here on earth. But um, you know, Mao Mao believed that too, and so did the Chinese in the they still in the that. communist revolution that finally succeeded in 1949. And then I write about it a bit in my book, the Cultural Revolution that takes place under Mao in 1966. And um, if you want to understand what's ta taking place. In our country during the past, say, 12 months, um, well, there's two books you should pick up. One's mine. But the second I'd recommend uh, is uh, there's a, a professor at a small technical institute in Minnesota named Fan Shun, and he wrote a book in 2004 called Gang of One. Mm -hmm. And it is a memoir about his time as a youth in the Red Guard in 1966. And like everything you read about in his memoir is exactly what you saw taking place in the streets of the United States in 2020. People being forced to kneel and confess their guilt, um, yeah. apologize for their privilege, raising their fists in the air and chanting slogans. It's all communist revolution. Yep. Well, like I said, I don't think there's any excuses for any former retired military or anyone active duty to not see the existential threat to the country. And uh, obviously, you know, and I don't want to get you into the chain of command issues, but I think it's coming from the top down at this point. And, uh, you know, that has to be confronted, but that's a whole nother situation. And, and, but my concern is, you know, I think we will solve the problem of the election and move on, but 
my concern is how we deal with uh, DOD going forward. And that, that's going to be a big hill to climb. But we can do it, but it's going to take a lot of work. And I think your book, uh, Irresistible Revolution, will will figure greatly in that. And so it's available on Amazon. And where else can you get it? Uh, the, I self-published. It's available in 40,000 nearly uh, brick and mortar stores across the world at the moment. Most books are probably purchased here in the United States through Amazon. So you can find it there. I've got a website as well where uh, I plan once this interview is available and other interviews to come uh, on my website. It's MatthewLohmeyer.com. How do you spell Lohmeyer? It's L-O-H-M-E-I-E-R. MatthewLohmeyer.com. Yep. That would be the place to get it from. I mean, are you signing those books? If yeah. Are. You want to come out here and have a lunch? Uh, then I'll be happy to sign it. <laughs> <laughs> um well, thank you. That's been extremely informative. Is there anything else you want to put out on the book or talk about or get out to the public? Uh, not necessarily on the book, but I, I do want to just revisit one question that you asked because I think it's very important. And mm -hmm. I'm still struggling to figure this out myself. And so I know a lot of people are wrestling with this. You know, what do you do about it when you come to understand that there's a problem? Mm -hmm. And uh, I started to get at it. But the, the idea is that people need to be courageous. Exactly. Now, this is a season in human history that we can be very grateful. We have an extraordinary opportunity to exhibit human courage. Courage begets courage. It yeah. does. And and so that's one of the reasons I'm trying to speak out. I'll tell you, uh, I released my book a week ago mm -hmm. and I have received uh, many, many messages from active duty service members. Mm hmm who have already heard about the book, some of whom are friends and some of whom heard about it from others mm -hmm. saying they bought the book. They're looking at the description. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for speaking up because we don't have a voice anymore. Well, you're doing this will cause others to do this. Maybe, you know, confront this ideology in their own units. I think so. You know? I hope so. Yeah. So the book is Irresistible Revolution. MatthewLohmeyer.com is the best place to get it. And uh, we'll put it up on on the screen here when we edit this and so everybody can see it. But uh, thank you so much for your time, Matthew. I want to do this again, maybe in a month or so. And I, I, I think your, your insight into what's happening in the country is extremely valuable. So thanks Todd. I appreciate your time. You bet. Take care.